Hi, I'm Riley Fessler. I'm a podcast producer here at the DSR Network, which means that my job is to make sure that we have great content and great guests across all of our shows. Our programming is supported by our members, and for that, we are truly grateful. I hope that you'll consider becoming a member to support the work that we do. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for nearly all of our shows, early access to episodes, enhanced show notes, and access to our exclusive DSR Slack and Discord communities. Membership is just $7 per month or $70 per year. To become a member, please visit thedsrnetwork.com forward slash buy. That's thedsrnetwork.com forward slash buy. Thank you very much for your support. This is the Daily Blast from the New Republic, produced and presented by the DSR Network. I'm your host, Greg Sargent. This week, progressive journalist Mehdi Hassan launched a new digital media company called Zeteo, which is Greek for to seek. Hassan's MSNBC show was canceled late last year without any explanation, leading to an outcry among his large online following. And this is his answer. But Hassan intends Zeteo as much more than a career relaunch. He claims that the mainstream media, among many other failings, is in some sense complicit in Donald Trump's effort to, quote, usher in a new era of fascism in the United States. He intends Zeteo as an answer to that. This raises many questions about what's happening to the right-wing and progressive information spaces, why the conventions of political reporting are failing to meet this moment, and how to cut through the clutter and drive home the perils facing American democracy right now. So we invited him on the show to talk about all of it. Welcome, Mehdi. Thanks for having me, Greg. So what exactly will your new media venture seek to accomplish? How do you intend to structure it? So there's many things we're trying to accomplish. Uh, Number one is we want to deal with something that you and I care deeply about, which is the inability of some sections of the quote-unquote mainstream media to really tell the truth about what is going on here, really describe the factual reality of the world that we live in. So I said in my announcement essay today, which is on, uh, forgive the plug, zeteonews.com. If people want to go and check it out, subscribe, zeteonews.com. In that essay, I say that words like racism, fascism, genocide are words that a lot of journalists shy away from because they're seen as loaded or charged or inflammatory or controversial. And sometimes those words are appropriate, not always, but sadly, in many cases these days they are. So I want to create a platform where we can speak freely, uh, speak in a a way that people expect journalists to speak in, not mealy-mouthed. Number two, uh, I want to provide a platform for other people to do that. This is not just a vehicle for me. You mentioned my shows and MSNBC and leaving. I could have just gone off and started a solo substack or just gone and done my column for The Guardian. I'm now writing a monthly column for The Guardian. I wanted to build something for more than me, an actual platform. So we're going to be rolling out a team of contributors in April. We're hoping to expand that as we grow and build. Uh, We really want a platform in the progressive space that matches some of the right-wing folks like the Ben Shapiros and Barry Weisses of this world. And number three, to go back to your point about like, what is it? How is it structured? This is an all singing, all dancing media platform. We will have streaming shows. We will have podcasts. We will have video essays. We will have op-eds. We will have newsletters. Uh, We're aiming high and we're hoping that we can fulfill um, some of the expectations of all the wonderful thousands of people who have already signed up in the last 24 hours. 
So I want to bear down on number two there. Why is it harder for progressive journalists to pull off this kind of launch? We've seen a bunch of right-wing media celebrity types like Tucker Carlson do this, and you, you mentioned a few others, and, and they're, they have developed huge audiences and are making a lot of money. Uh, yet it's much more rare on the progressive side. And, and I wonder if there's a structural explanation for that. Are you running into kind of a deeper understanding of the problem as you try to do this? Yeah. So again, I, I, I wrote a book called Win Every Argument in which I say you should always have three reasons. I'll give you three reasons why it is harder uh, for progressives to do this. Uh, number one, there is a money challenge, right? It's easier to raise money on the right. Um, you know, there's a lot more fracking billionaires who, uh, Ben Shavira started with, I think, four and a half million dollars from a fracking billionaire in Texas. Um, Tucker Carlson has some well-heeled supporters, as does Barry Weiss. So there's just more money on the right. That's just a, a fact of life on the kind of committed political right. That's number one. Number two, I think there is an issue where facts don't matter as much on the right, dare I say. Uh, I think it's much easier to run an operation on the right when you're just kind of doing grievance politics and victimhood and fake culture wars. Much easier to set up shop and do that than do actual journalism with fact-checking and high-quality uh, production values and high editorial values. Uh, and number three, I think there's a demographic issue, right? For the right, the audience is much easier to capture. It's much, you know, it's, it's, it's a mainly white conservative audience that basically all care about the same thing. Like, even if you're a Trumper or a never-Trumper, you're all still obsessed with wokeism right now. You're all still obsessed with the same uh, woke, uh, anti-woke agenda and all of those issues that tend to unite conservatives much more easy. If you take Trump out of the equation, the right is a much more uh, cohesive, united grouping. And this is why Democrats struggle, because the progressive coalition is much broader. So even for someone like myself, Greg, I have a following of people who are on the left as it were, like the Bernie Sanders left and beyond the Bernie Sanders left. I also have an audience of traditional liberals and centrists from my MSNBC days who are united, who are, you know, blue no matter who. And so for someone like me, I have to think about what is my content. I'm never going to satisfy all the people all the time. It's much easier to be on the right because you just give culture wars red meat and everyone laps it up. Yeah, it really does seem like there's kind of a heterodoxy on, among, among the broad center left that doesn't exist in the same way on the right. I, I should probably qualify that a bit. The, the 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 populist right, I think, is doing some interesting things that that really kind of di diverge from the party line, as it were, among Republicans. But generally speaking, you really don't uh, you don't see the kind of intra ideological disagreement yes. on the right that you do on the left these days. That might be an overstatement, but I think it's generally right. And even if you do, Greg, it's a very recent phenomenon. If you want to take a big picture look at why we haven't been able to do this on the liberal left. That's yeah, I want to understand a little bit better how you view the information space right now. I mean, theoretically, a place like MSNBC is a place where a progressive media personality can be very blunt and clear with language and dispense with euphemisms. Is that not right? Is there is there something about the kind of institutional liberal media that really, in some sense, is stultifying? Is there some broad problem here? I think there is something about institutionalization. I think there's something about being corporate-owned. And I say this not just about MSNBC, this is about the media as a whole. I mean, I spoke pretty bluntly, I think people would agree, when I was at MSNBC, both in my monologues and in the tenor of my interviews. 
Um, others do as well. You hear Joy Reid and my colleague, ex-colleagues Ali Velshi, Eamon Moyuddin. Um, but, you know, across the board, MSNBC, again, let's just take the, what we were just talking about, the monolithic idea versus the kind of heterodox internally divided. MSNBC has people like Nicole Wallace and Joe Scarborough, you know, people I know well and respect, uh, but they are not from a background that Fox hosts are from. How many, how many, how many ex-Democratic Party administration people are hosting shows or pundits on Fox? And there is, you know, MSNBC, like CNN, still wants to be a serious news organization. In this country, if you want to be a serious news organization, you need to show that you have a plurality of views and that you're impartial and that you're letting people on from different walks of life. Um, although the left never really gets the same look in as the right. Um, but yeah, I do think that's an issue. And I said this on CNN yesterday. I said this to Jake Tapper on the day of my launch. I said, look, cable, I'm, not, I'm not coming out saying burn it all down. Like Cable news has a role to play. The mainstream press, you worked at the Washington Post, has a role to play. But there are gaps. There are certainly huge gaps, and there are frustrations from readers and viewers and listeners that need to be filled. And that's what I want to do with Zeteo. I want to say, all right, what are people upset about? They're upset about the fact that we can't cover some of the biggest social and political and cultural trends of our time because journalists are still operating on old models about both sides and the view from nowhere. How do we cover the rise of, uh, you know, the return of anti-Semites and neo-Nazis to our public spaces when people are scared of using the racist word or the fascist word? So I want to engage in those spaces. Foreign policy, for example, Gaza, the US media as a whole, left and right, has been abysmal on Gaza. I, you know, I want to be able to talk about war crimes and ethnic cleansing and genocide and not have to worry about someone saying, oh, you can't say the G word on TV. Right. So let's talk about the problem of euphemism and political coverage, because those gaps that you're talking about really, really are, they're real, right? I mean, you when you say certain things on social media that that are, for various reasons, unsayable in a quote-unquote MSM setting, you immediately touch a touch a nerve and 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 I think that's because there's this hunger out there for a certain way of discussing these issues that is in some sense not allowed in the mainstream press so right now the supreme court is helping trump delay his january 6th related trial which trump wants to do so that if he regains the white house he can cancel ongoing prosecutions of himself so this is a place where I see immense problems in the press accounts, okay? They're describing Trump's approach in a kind of weirdly detached way, as if it's just another canny legal strategy, like one, one that's as uncontroversial as his choice of defense lawyers. But what doesn't come through is that he wants to do all this to place himself above the law entirely. How, how should this be covered? Should the headline be, Trump wants to put himself above the law? Yes, and more than that, Let's not just focus on Trump. What about the Supreme Court, Greg? What about our coverage of the Supreme Court? Why are we helping perpetuate this myth to the American public that this is some uh, disinterested, impartial judicial institution that has no skin in the game when we know that's not the case? Every reporter who covers the Supreme Court knows. That's what's so frustrating, Greg. Everything you and I are talking about, these are not secrets. These are not things that people disagree on. Everyone knows this in private conversation. It's just that there are these norms and conventions that people have to follow. So we have to pretend that these people in robes are not politicians in robes. We have to ignore the fact that Clarence Thomas should have nothing to do with a Donald Trump decision, given his wife Ginny was involved uh, in the coup attempt. Um, we're supposed to not mention every time we talk about the Supreme Court that three of the six justices were appointed by Donald Trump, and you could argue two of them are in stolen seats. So all of this context, and I obsess over this word context, is missing 
from a lot of the coverage of the Supreme Court. And then, of course, when it comes to Trump, yes, the constant description of Trump as sav- you know, some kind of savvy actor, some kind of you know, just playing a game, not as an existential threat to politics, to the judicial system, to democracy. For example, you read in accounts, I've been reading all the accounts, where they say, well, you know, if the trial pushes into October, that could be a problem because the DOJ has this guideline that you can't have anything 60 days before an election. But as you point out, if he wins, there is no trial. Shouldn't that be part of any conversation? This is not a normal case. This is not, this, I'm trying to think, this is not Hillary Clinton's email server where, you know, where, where it's, oh, well, it's too close to election. This is Donald Trump openly saying, once I win, I cancel all this. Not only do I cancel all this, I go after everyone in revenge. Right. He, he says, not only does he say all that, he says it's the right thing to do. Right thing to do. And I'm going to get, and I'm then, then I'm going to use the DOJ. Right. <laughs> to do what I think they're doing to me, which they're not, which is go after my opponents, the Biden crime family. It's interesting that you bring up the stolen Supreme Court seats. I, I mean, that is definitely a word you would n- almost never hear, if at all, ever in, in MSM coverage. Journalists would say, liberal journalists at the time, CNN, MSNBC, Washington, both all the places you and I have worked, they would say, well, how can we use such a word? It's a very loaded word. It's not an objective word. It's a partisan word, which is fine if they were consistent, but they use loaded subjective words all the time in other contexts, often when it's the right pressuring them to do so. As you've written very eloquently over the past, it's all about the right working the refs. It's all about the right getting, you know, smuggling their agenda into mainstream discourse. Look at the way we talk about Joe Biden's age. Look at the way we talked about Hillary Clinton's emails. That was not objective, impartial coverage. That was using the frames and parameters offered by the right. Right. And and the conventions of political reporting are, are the big problem here that, that I think you're getting at. Um, one of my pet peeves is how news analysis pieces will say that this or that development, like the special counsel report attacking Biden's age, provides quote unquote fodder or ammunition for Trump to attack Biden. And then the writer uses that as the excuse to analyze whether the attack will work, which itself yes. elevates the attack into news and gets it more attention. I mean, that is the perfect. And example. they do it all under the cover of news analysis, which I love. Yeah. And, and, and it, it, treats the, it treats the choice to, to elevate this or that development and the, pol- the right-wing political attack over it as a neutral act of journalism. But it isn't. It's a choice. It's an editorial choice. And, and I wonder, your news organization, you will transparently, I gather, say that, right? Yes. This is our editorial choice. We could make other editorial choices. And this is something you don't see in the mainstream media, I think. Look, my position from a very young age has always been, I don't have a problem with journalism or with journalists having biases. I would rather the journalists tell me their bias than pretend that they are doing this lofty view from nowhere. I don't even bother to vote as one New York Times uh, political journalist famously puts it, I'd just rather dispense with all that and say, look, with me, you know where I'm coming from. Does that mean I'm not going to be fair? Of course I'm going to be fair. Of course I'm going to be, there's a difference between fairness and impartiality and this kind of fake neutrality where you take two positions and kind of stick your finger in the middle and say, well, I'm fair because I'm in the middle. That's no, you're not fair. If you stand in the middle between a climate change scientist and a climate change denying conspiracy theorist, you're not being fair. You've just been played. Right. In, in, in another way to put that is that it's possible to have a point of view and be fair-minded. Yes. 
100%. And that is exactly what we're going to be doing at Zateo. That's exactly what I've done in my interviews, Greg. You know I've done a lot of contentious, challenging interviews over the years, including with people I agree with on a lot of stuff. My point being, you know, when, I do, when I'm doing an interview, for example, with someone in power, I'm going to hold them to account because they have power. Even if I agree with them on certain issues, maybe I'll bring in, you know, uh, um, good faith criticisms from someone on the other side of the spectrum just to make sure that they're answering the criticisms that are out there. Even with my biases, I make sure that the interview itself is fair and balanced, to borrow a phrase. Okay, well, let me challenge you on one point. I think we have to acknowledge that in certain respects, the quote-unquote MSM really has risen to this moment, right? Some of the reporting on Trump's authoritarian plans for a second term is extraordinarily accomplished and deeply revelatory. I don't think you'd deny that. I, but to, to me, the problem is that there's a deep tension here in a way. Despite all that great reporting, at the same time, in one news analysis piece after another, you get this bizarrely bloodless language that is entirely out of sync with what these outlets are themselves reporting. Exactly. hundred percent. I think you nailed it there. The reporting has been great. We know about Trump's authoritarian second demands because of great reporters like Jonathan Swan and others who have told us about the detention, sweeping detention camps that he plans to build, uh, you know, the, the revenge tour he plans to go on with the DOJ, all of these authoritarian issues, the use of the Insurrection Act, all of these things we've learned from the Post and the Times and CNN and others. And I respect the reporters who did that reporting. The problem is twofold, as you say. Number one, they undersell their own reporting. You know, the New York Times headlines are the bane of my life, as I'm sure you're aware. The tweets that go out, they undersell what the story is. This is, this is. this is crazy stuff. And it's a very bloodless headline, as you put it. And number two, there is no joining of the dots, Greg. There's no joining of the dots. So in one part of the newspaper, we're told Donald Trump's about to, you know, use the Insurrection Act to shoot protesters. And in another part of the newspaper, we're told, well, Joe Biden's age and Donald Trump looks a little fitter and healthier. Who cares? You just told us on the previous page he's about to shoot protesters. It's that disconnect that's the real problem. And of course, to add to everything, I always have a reason number three, collective amnesia, right? What really bothers me about the media in this country and about Americans in general, I'm an immigrant, I'm an American, I've lived here nearly a decade, but you know, Americans are famous for having very short memories, is the fact that we just forget everything that happened two minutes ago. So Trump says poisoning the blood. We all get mad for a day and say, we quoted Hitler. Then we move on. How many people even remember that he said, let's suspend, let's terminate the constitution? He said less than a year, a year and a half ago. Uh, we just keep moving on. And therefore, for someone like Trump, it's very easy to say or do whatever you like, knowing that in the next news cycle, in the next week, and in the next month, whatever you said in January or December or November, doesn't matter anymore. Yes, absolutely. Although I want to I want to press you on one point though. So imagine if all the coverage were a euphemism free zone. How far would it go in solving the information space problem? It, it seems to me that that we often take refuge in the idea that this is solvable, right? With the right kind of tone of headline, the right kind of editorial slant. No, I don't I'm not sure it is solvable, Greg, to be honest, to be very blunt with you. Right. I'm very depressed and concerned about the future of journalism, media, information, democracy in this country. I don't know how American democracy can survive if tens of millions of people are living in a fact-free, information-free, partisan bubble. If you have 75% of Republicans saying they're fine with Donald Trump being dictator for a day, I don't know how we survive long-term. Social media has had its huge advantages. I'm setting up a online media company thanks to social media, but there are also some huge cons, as you know, in terms of the way, in terms of the way it's a vector for misinformation and hate um, and uh, partisanship. 
And look, genuinely, I believe we should have a euphemism-free media, not because of not because I care about the outcome as much. Of course, I want an outcome that's small d democratic and not fascistic. But I don't tell journalists to avoid euphemisms and to tell the truth and to be bold because that's the way to defeat Trump. I say that because it's the right thing to do, right? Separate to anything else. It's just dishonest and deceptive to hide from your readers or viewers the truth that you know. And therefore, and also just from a just from a sanity point of view, Greg, even if it makes no difference to the rest of the world that two plus two equals four, I think I think I still think we should say two plus two equals four. Right. Understood. I just, I guess to, to sort of build on your pessimism a little bit, it, it seems like the problem goes pretty deep, right? The fracturing of the media and the absolute glut of competition for attention mean that even the most blunt and key, clear coverage can't cut through the noise. And that's yes. what concerns There's me. so much noise. There's, that's a quantity issue as well, Greg, right? There's a lot of noise. These days have gone of like, you know, three networks and a couple of papers and water cooler moments. Those days have gone. Again, there are advantages to that. I'm not pretending that there were, the old days were better. No, they were awful in many ways. But the reality is that you can live your entire life without ever having to worry yourself with a single factual piece of information. Right now, you can. You can be online all day and never come across a single fact. What's troubling about it all is that the attention of the American public about the threats to democracy really can be grabbed, Right. But it, it requires these immensely powerful moments. So the Muslim ban, crowds showing up at airports to protest it, kids in cages, that punched through to everyone's consciousness. January 6th, imagery of that violent mob with Trump signs and Confederate flags and the noose flooding people's airwaves and phones day after day after day. And it just seems to me that the most fundamental problem we face is that only that kind of thing can really break through. And when it does break through, it really breaks through, right? It, it, it changes the equation. It does. But then again, you mentioned January 6th. It's a great example of what we're talking about here, where in that moment, even Republicans knew what was what. They knew what was happening, both Republican politicians and the Republican base. You look at the polling at the time. Everyone was outraged by it, apart from a tiny, hardcore MAGA minority. And yet, Democrats let the moment slip, and the liberal media moved on. The DOJ, of course, don't even get me started on Merrick Garland's failures. And therefore, we are in this moment now where when you poll Republicans now, they're like, oh, it was patriotic. Oh, it was an FBI false flag. Oh, they're hostages. That didn't happen organically or naturally. That was a deliberate misinformation and propaganda campaign to rewrite the history of January 6th. You're right. We could have another big moment later this year. Doesn't mean it will endure unless those of us who write the first draft of history are honest about it, blunt about it, and keep going at it. Well, that leads to my next question, which is that, look, the far-right information space is really flourishing right now, and the liberal info space just isn't. Elon Musk is using Twitter to elevate Tucker Carlson's soft interviews with autocrats, kind of laundering them for a global far-right audience. And I think Brian Boitler said somewhere that the liberal media space is shrinking. Do you think that that's happening right now? And if so, why is it happening? Both the, the growth of the right and the shrinking of the left. So to answer your question, it's a great question. In some ways, it is shrinking. Clearly, look at the bloodbath in the media in January where how many outlets laid off how many people? Hundreds of journalists, great journalists, hardworking people. Local journalism we know is in crisis. 
which you could call liberal journalism, if liberal is now just code for factual. And it's a real problem. But again, some of us are trying to redress the balance. I'm not pretending my small startup media company is going to redress the balance of thousands of jobs lost and foreign news bureaus closed and investigative journalists laid off in the last few months and the last few years even. But somewhere we have to take a stand. And, you know, I left MSNBC and I could have gone and just been a freelance journalist and done my own thing. My wife's like, what are you running a business for? You don't know anything about entrepreneurship, which is true. Um, but I wanted to build something that will endure in this moment. I wanted to build something beyond me so that we can have platforms, as many as possible, to try and push back. And one thing I've always tried to do as a journalist is have an oversized impact to punch above my weight. And that is what I want to do with Zateo. It's what you've been doing at the New Republic since you left the post. And, you know, hopefully there'll be more of us as the election approaches and beyond. Well, Mehdi Hassan, good luck with it. And thanks for coming on. Thanks, Craig, for having me. You've been listening to The Daily Blast with me, your host, Greg Sargent. The Daily Blast is a New Republic podcast and is produced by Riley Fessler and the DSR Network. 